1: In the search for justice, courts in America are given the heavy burden of sorting right from wrong and imposing consequences which will deal with the safety and well-being of our communities. And often this has meant jail time, time behind bars, or lock them up and throw away the key. America also has the dubious distinction of imprisoning a significantly higher percentage of its citizens than any other country in the world, a consequence significantly of the war on drugs originated in the 1970s and its application with racist colored glasses and a tough-on-crime policy, including things like three strikes and your outlaws. Is there a better way to deal with at least some crimes? It appears that the answer is yes, and we'll find out more as we talk with participants of treatment courts in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live. Just one example of a nationwide movement to be smart on crime, resulting in greatly improved futures for criminals whose root problem is mental health or drugs, or for mothers who need and want to be doing the crucial work of raising kids. This is part one of a two-part series, and for today's Spirit in Action, we'll visit with the supervisor of Eau Claire's Treatment Courts, Melissa Ives, and afterward, we'll talk to some of the persons who've chosen to do the hard work of treatment, healing, and reform, rather than simply sit time in jail. Right now, we'll get Melissa Ives on the phone, Eau Claire Treatment Courts supervisor. Melissa, welcome to Spirit in Action.
2: Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here and talking about the treatment courts.
1: Treatment courts. I don't know if this is a term that everybody knows, how many people are familiar with it. When did treatment courts start?
2: Treatment courts actually date back in the United States in 1989. That's when Miami-Dade County, Florida began the first drug court because it saw that traditional sentencing was not effective for a lot of the addicted offenders that were coming through their court system. And since then, it's really been an idea that has spread like a wildfire throughout the nation. Wisconsin started its first court in 1996, and Eau Claire County began its first court in 2004.
1: So in 2004, what happened in Eau Claire?
2: Actually, starting back in 2003, Judge Stark took note of what was going on elsewhere along with other folks in Eau Claire County and started planning for a drug court to address the needs of substance-dependent offenders who are coming through the courts and uh, whom, again, traditional sentencing was not effective. That evolved into what we have today as drug court and eventually led to the start of three other courts in Eau Claire County as well what we call the Alternatives to Incarcerating Mother's Court, or AIM Court, which began in 2007, the Mental Health Court, which began in 2008, and a Veterans Court, uh, which is actually a three-county court, which began in 2011.
1: And we'll get into each of those individual types of treatment courts. But the comment you made, traditional courts were not effective with them. I have my doubts that traditional courts are effective with other criminals, but is there a special difference with people who have drug problems or mental health issues? Are these particularly different in terms of recidivism or other changes that happen for
2: prisoners? Well, there are certain needs, obviously, that addicted offenders have and folks with mental health diagnoses have that other offenders don't possess. And there's no reason to believe that they're going to necessarily get better in jail or prison if there's no treatment provided. And generally, there isn't a lot of treatment available behind bars. And what we do have available is a lot of really great treatment within the community. And that's what the treatment courts allow us to do is to hook individuals up with some wonderful treatment opportunities within the community, at the same time providing structure and accountability that is also needed to help motivate individuals to work toward recovery and towards healthy living within the community.
1: You said that Judge Lisa Stark was at the beginning of this. So it started in Eau Claire area from a judge who was actually seeing this. Do judges, before that time, were they handling all of these cases just as regular criminal cases?
2: I believe so. Basically, the way we've dealt with uh, offenders in the past has been through jail and through prison treatment courts seek to really shake up that response by, again, allowing people to remain in the community, but really providing a very structured environment, a very accountable environment partnered with treatment for mental health and substance use disorders in an effort to try to break that cycle of recidivism and really return people as healthy individuals to the community.
1: You mentioned four different types of treatment courts And I was wondering, Melissa, which you've had experience with or what roles you've had with respect to them. I mean, I know you're the supervisor for the courts, but have you seen more of the nitty-gritty, what's going on individually?
2: My involvement has been more from a, a grant writing standpoint and a project direction standpoint. I wrote a grant for Eau Claire County back in 2011 that resulted in a $1.2 million award from the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration for the past three years I worked as the project director for that grant. That grant has actually ended officially September 29th, but since then we've been able to get a couple of other grants from the state as well, and one of those actually allowed me to continue on in a supervisor position for the court's. My involvement is more, again, from a project management or a program management standpoint, but I also work with the triage team to review referrals and to uh, really institute policies and procedures that are conducive to producing the best outcomes possible for the courts, as well as seeking funding sources to uh, maintain the sustainability of the courts, which is really a key focus right now moving forward. In an area of tight budgets, we really need to show the, the value that treatment courts provide in order to maintain them as a funding priority for the county and for the state.
1: I'm probably a pushover, but could you please prove to me that this is cost-efficient to use treatment courts instead of the regular courts? Go ahead. Convince me.
2: <laughs> sure. Well, we've had a lot of great outcomes so far. We've served roughly, I think, around 370 individuals since 2004. When you consider all four courts, the recidivism rate for the general population, I guess general probation population, well the data that we have for the two longest standing courts I think is fairly convincing, and again those two courts are the Drug Court and the AIM Court. Drug Courts served just about 200 people since 2004, and AIM Court has served a little under 100. Since its inception, for the, uh, the drug court, we're seeing that only about 27% of individuals recidivate or commit a, a new offense that results in a conviction within three years of graduation. And that really falls in line with the national average for treatment court participants. What's really neat about that is we see only about 12% of OWI offenders reoffending within that window And we're talking about folks who sometimes have five, six, seven or more OWI offenses in their past. So it's a pattern in their life, and we're seeing that pattern interrupted as a result of drug court involvement. We also see that individuals who don't finish the program recidivate at a much higher rate. So we're talking about 50% of individuals who don't finish the drug court program end up with a new conviction within three years, as opposed to only 27% who do finish the program.
1: And when you say don't finish, what do you mean by that, Melissa?
2: Uh, It's not an easy program. Uh, There is a lot of accountability involved in a treatment court. So there is regular drug testing. There is the need to appear before the judge on a weekly basis at first, then eventually biweekly or every three weeks, uh, depending upon the phase. There is a lot of treatment involved. There are just a lot of requirements in general involved. And in order for a person to remain in the program, they need to be willing to comply with those requirements. Now, obviously, nobody's going to be perfect, and and folks do mess up, and there's some allowances for that. But if somebody shows repeated noncompliance over a period of time, or if somebody shows themselves to be a public safety risk, they will be terminated from the program. And so not everybody who starts the program finishes the program. Those who do start the program and finish it show significant positive results.
1: Is there a danger? It doesn't sound like it from what you're describing, but is there a danger that this is really just something for soft-hearted people who are soft on crime? They don't want to hold people accountable. Is that even a possibility with this alternative?
2: I think it's easy for that perception to live, but I think the reality of it is there's nothing easy about going through a treatment court. I think if folks saw the schedules that some of these folks have to keep, if they saw all the requirements that are involved, they would see that there is uh, nothing easy about the program. In fact, some of the things that I've seen, I wouldn't want to have to keep that schedule. So... We're asking a lot of these participants in order to allow them to remain in the community. And thankfully, a lot of them at this point in in their lives are willing to take that step and are ready for change, are ready to change their lives around and to benefit from the, the opportunity that they've got available to them through the treatment courts.
1: You mentioned that budgets are tight. You've always got to cut whatever fat is there. My assumption is, because it reduces recidivism like it does, that this is actually saving money. It's reducing what goes into the budget. Since you're in charge of writing grants, though, and this has been funded by special grants, how hard is that and what's the future for finances for these alternative treatment courts?
2: Well, I think kind of pluses and minuses. On the plus side, I think you're seeing a lot of momentum across the state right now for treatment courts, not just across the state, but across the nation. I talked about the first court starting in Miami-Dade County in 1989, there are now literally thousands of treatment courts across the nation. I don't recall the number in Wisconsin, but it has grown exponentially in recent years. And again, we've actually got four courts in Eau Claire County, which I believe leads the state at present. There is a lot of momentum behind treatment courts, and the legislature is starting to back that up as well. The Treatment Alternatives and Diversion Grant through the state originally served only a handful of counties. During the past year or so, that has grown substantially. There are now dozens of counties that are being awarded grant funds by the State Department of Justice for treatment courts. Now, that money doesn't go all the way toward funding treatment courts. It's only a kind of a drop in the bucket, but it shows that the the will has changed within the legislature. There is a need there to deviate from what we've been doing in the past, which hasn't been effective in treating individuals with substance use and mental health disorders. There is a need to provide treatment and to improve outcomes so we don't keep cycling people through the criminal justice system. The momentum is there, but we need to continue that momentum because funding does continue to be tight, and grant funding isn't something that you can rely on indefinitely usually. And so I think what's really needed is a dedicated source, a dedicated allotment from the state for treatment courts specifically in order to maintain their long-term sustainability.
1: Is there a particular uh, deadline coming up about financing within Eau Claire or within the state of Wisconsin or at the federal level?
2: Well, Eau Claire County, like many counties, is currently in its budget process. And so our county board members are looking at budgets not just for the treatment courts but for all of human services and all of the county and trying to determine the best way to allocate available dollars. And that's something that is going to continue on for, I believe, the next month or so. There is, a, I believe, a public review and comment session on the county budget in early November. So that will give folks an opportunity to take a look and provide the county board with feedback on the budget. And that's a great opportunity to let citizens have their voice be heard on the treatment courts or whatever is of interest to them within the county budget. So that process is ongoing right now and really will be key to determining how much funding we have available in the future for the treatment courts.
1: I was interested to hear that, at least on Wisconsin level, and I assume this is true in other states, that this is the kind of effort that can get support from both sides of the aisle, that because it is cost-efficient, because it is people-efficient, it gets support both from Republicans and Democrats. Is that how the situation looks here in Eau Claire, on state, nationally? Is this getting bipartisan support everywhere?
2: That's certainly what we've seen locally. I know that both Senator Weinhout, who's a Democrat, and and Representative Petrick, who's a Republican, have both been very public in their support for treatment courts, as have other senators and representatives. And so I think that's just a good example that this is a bipartisan issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's a how-do-we-use-our-criminal-justice-resources-most-effectively issue. The evidence is in, I think, is shown by the legislature's increased commitment to the TAD grant we discussed Folks are looking for a better way to address some of those criminal justice needs. And again, the the traditional system has not worked well for these folks. This is an opportunity to break up that cycle of recidivism and also to help people maintain long-term recovery to keep their families intact and to uh, really be contributing members of the community as opposed to sitting behind bars somewhere.
1: Do we have any sense of how many people really need this service but can't get it? How do you limit who gets in and determine, unfortunately, therefore, those who don't get this special treatment?
2: There is a referral process that's open to anyone who wishes to utilize it. There's a treatment court referral form that needs to be submitted and what we call a triage team meets on a weekly basis to review those referrals and to use the criteria that we have set to help understand whether those individuals would be appropriate for a treatment court and if so, which would be the one that's most conducive to meeting their needs. The criteria that we use vary somewhat depending upon the court, but there are some very basic factors that we consider. For example, for all but the Veterans Court, the person needs to be a resident of Eau Claire County, they need to be an adult, and they need to be what we would say moderate or high risk. What that means is that there is a good likelihood they are going to reoffend unless there is some kind of intervention in their life. So we're trying to target those folks who can benefit most from those resources. Those are some of the basic criteria. For drug court and AIM court, we're also looking at individuals who have a substance dependence. They may have a co occurring mental health disorder. In fact, I would say the majority of our folks do have co occurring mental health and substance use disorders. Mental health court uh, targets those individuals whose uh, mental health needs are a little bit greater, individuals who may not succeed as well in one of those other courts. AIM court specifically targets mothers with dependent children, maybe a pregnant woman, or it may be a woman with minors in the household. But each court kind of targets a different person. Veterans obviously targets veterans. So each court has a, a slightly different population that they serve. Some individuals may potentially qualify for multiple courts, and we try to determine which court would be most effective in serving that person.
1: I'm still wondering... How many people are not being served? I don't think you have enough funding to put everybody through these programs.
2: Well, and truthfully, we don't really know exactly how many people we could serve. We only have a record of the individuals who have been referred. We do know, though, that the treatment courts are generally always at capacity at least the drug court and the AIM court and mental health court now are all operating pretty much at capacity, which means that some individuals need to wait a while to come into the court. At times there were more than a dozen folks really on the, the I hate to say it, but the back burner this past year because there was no time to serve them and there was no capacity within the courts to serve them. And those are only the folks who are being referred We have a sneaking suspicion there are a whole lot of other folks who could be well served within the treatment courts, but don't have anybody who either is familiar with the treatment courts to refer them or who doesn't really understand how the treatment courts might help them.
1: I think I have two questions here. One is, who does these referrals? And if someone gets a referral, does that mean they're going to be in the program eventually, even if they have to be, as you said, put on the back burner?
2: Just about anybody can submit a referral. We really don't limit that. It's generally defense attorneys or Department of Corrections agents who are making the majority of referrals. We've also had quite a few of individuals refer themselves. Sometimes it's a family member or a friend. Sometimes it's a social worker. There are really a number of different sources that may refer an individual. And that's one of the reasons we're trying to increase awareness is to make sure that folks in the community are aware of this resource, which can provide a very beneficial intervention in people's lives.
1: Give me an idea of what kind of resources are for these different courts. What are the different resources that they have available for these courts that you don't get in the regular jail population?
2: Well, one of the biggest differences is there's a case manager who works closely with the person and with the Department of Corrections to develop a case plan, which helps target some of those needs that that person has, what we call some of the criminogenic needs, which are factors that contribute to that person committing crime in the first place. So we look at some of those things and we try to figure out what can we do to help you stay crime-free in the future. So we've got things like substance abuse treatment. That's a big one. We've got treatment groups that talk about criminal thinking and how to change that criminal thinking to try to address that factor. We've got other groups that address trauma. Trauma is a huge issue for a lot of folks in the criminal justice system. The majority have some significant trauma histories. And without addressing that trauma piece, sometimes it's hard to address some of the other needs that the person has. That's really become uh, one of those services that's become a really big factor in our treatment courts over the past few years and something that we really think is important to continue. So there's that piece of it. But then we also work with people to help them address things like employment, stable recovery-oriented housing, getting insurance, food, clothing and so forth. So really trying to look at the person holistically and meet all of those needs and again hopefully I'll return them in a healthy manner to the community and not just promote their own health and recovery but the the health of their families as well.
1: Do you have a sense of what makes a person a prime candidate for a referral? I mean there's a lot of people with various drug problems including alcohol. There's a lot of mental health. What makes someone a prime candidate for these courts?
2: there are a couple of really key factors. One of them is the type of crime they've committed. So for drug or AIM court, it needs to be a felony offense or what we would call a habitual misdemeanor. So somebody who has repeat misdemeanors. For mental health court, it can be any misdemeanor. For veterans court, it could be, again, any misdemeanor or a felony charge. The other thing we look at, again, is that risk factor. We're trying to really take in those individuals who have a moderate to higher risk level. In other words, a good chance that they're going to reoffend without some kind of significant intervention. We don't take low-risk individuals. And the reason for that is because research shows us that when you mix low-risk individuals and higher-risk individuals, there's a good chance that you're going to basically make those lower-risk individuals higher risk. There is kind of a negative impact on those individuals who on their own probably will self-correct anyway. So we're really targeting those individuals who aren't going to self-correct without some kind of intervention in their life. So those are kind of some of the key factors. What we do when somebody comes into the court is we screen them uh, with a number of different validated instruments. One of them, which is used by the Department of Corrections across the state, is called the Compass, uh, which is a risk needs assessment. It talks about their risk level to reoffend as well as the types of criminogenic needs they have, those factors that contribute to that criminal activity. We also screen them with something called the TCU Drug Screen 2 to help determine their substance abuse level as well as their mental health through the Correctional Mental Health Screen. We use what's called the PTSD checklist, which screens for trauma, TCU Criminal Thinking Scales, which looks at criminal thinking, and then something called the Eureka, the University of Rhode Island Change Assessment, which looks at their motivation to change and it's not to say that we don't accept people who aren't ready to change, but we do like to understand up front where they are at in that process. Are they considering change? Are they ready to change? Where are they at in that process, or is that something we need to address early on? Is there motivation to change? So we have all of these different tools that we use to kind of help us understand whether somebody is appropriate for a treatment court, and if they are, what kind of treatment needs to be targeted to help them be successful.
1: So you've had a number of people come through these courts since 2004. Some people go through prison, go through a course, and they come out star graduates. I I think of Nelson Mandela. I guess he graduated from 20-some years in prison in South Africa, and he became president of the nation. Do we have any star graduates that we can mention, that we're allowed to mention? Of course, since this is court business, you generally don't put a lot of names over the air unless they want to have their names out there.
2: Right. And I would say, yes, we do have quite a few star graduates, as you put it, individuals who've been extremely successful since leaving the court. And I would say there have actually been some other individuals who have been successful after leaving the court without even graduating. So I'd like to give a couple of examples. One of an individual who successfully graduated from AIM Court and another of an individual who did not graduate from mental health court. Both are doing fantastic right now thanks in part to the treatment that they received during their participation in the program. One of the ladies I'm thinking of is actually a leader of the AIM court alumni currently, had committed some financial crimes and gone to jail, and while in the jail, met with a psychiatrist and had realized that there was something going on and she didn't understand it and found out that she was bipolar. And that kind of helped her to understand some of the the reasons for some of the things that she was doing. Actually, graduated relatively quickly from AIMCourt and has really been a wonderful cheerleader, doing fantastic. Has two boys, I believe, and and a husband, and is just doing wonderfully in family life and uh, really in employment and and just doing a fantastic job since graduation. One of the other people I would point to had been in mental health court uh, several years ago, And, you know, really didn't meet the requirements of the court, eventually was terminated. But since that time, has actually gotten on the right path and moved to Florida and is doing fantastic and is coming back to the court actually to visit and is going to be made an honorary graduate. He's doing so well. And so even if somebody fails or quote-unquote fails at first, that doesn't mean that they're not headed closer to recovery. We've had some wonderful success stories over the long term.
1: Well, let's talk about the future. Are there other treatment courts that are possible in the future? Is it just expansion of this, expansion of staff? What would be the rosy future that we'd have with respect
2: to treatment courts? Well, I think, again, there are a lot of folks that we could serve who aren't currently being served in the treatment courts. Uh, We do run into some challenges when it comes to resources, and when we talk about resources, we're not just talking about treatment resources, we're talking about judicial resources, because one of the key elements, if not the central element of a treatment court, is the judge. And unless there's a judge who is able and willing to devote sufficient time to a treatment court, it's not going to work. And that's where we we probably run into challenges as far as expansion comes, because right now we probably have, you know, one or two fewer judges than we really should have in Eau Claire County based upon workload. And without additional time available to those individuals, it's pretty difficult to try to expand the courts. Now, we have some wonderful judges in Eau Claire County who've gone above and beyond the call of duty to try to serve these participants. But there's only so much that any judge can do and still fulfill their other responsibilities. So that's one of the the key challenges moving forward as far as expansion goes.
1: You said, Melissa, that attorneys are some of the people who give referrals for these courts and that people can refer themselves. Is there any organized effort to get the word out there so that people know that treatment courts are an option?
2: I think there's a pretty good awareness among certain attorneys and certain Department of Corrections agents, but I would say as a whole... Within the community, there's not a great awareness of the treatment courts, either what they are or who they serve, and that will be one of my major challenges moving forward as a supervisor is to raise that visibility within the community to help people understand the value of the treatment courts and hopefully generate more referrals and also generate more resources so that we can serve people more effectively and produce better outcomes for their involvement within the criminal justice system. When individuals commit crime, they're going to be exposed to one sentencing alternative or another, so let's provide the sentencing alternative that produces the best outcome.
1: It does look like a really necessary and important feature of our court system, something that it seems so obvious and intelligent So I think it's really important that I talk to more of the people in the courts, and we'll do that in just a moment. I want to express my appreciation to you, Melissa. And again, we've been speaking with Melissa Ives. She is supervisor for the Eau Claire Treatment Courts. You'll find them maybe in your state and in your locality. Just look them up, treatment courts. And there's drug courts and mental health courts. And there's courts for vets and for mothers. Many different ways that we can reduce costs and improve the society that we're in by being wise. And how we use our courts. So, Melissa, I want to thank you for your role in nurturing this and making it possible in the future. I wish you all the best for getting the funding so we can make this difference in people's lives and in the difference of our community. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Again, Melissa Ives, Eau Claire Treatment Court's supervisor, was the first of two guests today for Spirit in Action. This is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, with nine plus years of programs available for free listening and download, plus links to and info about our guests. There are comments on the site and find a button for you to add your own. We love two-way communication. There's also a donate button. Click on it to support this full-time world healing work. And especially remember to support your local community radio station doing invaluable community building work and bringing you a slice of news and music that you get nowhere else on the American broadcast scape. Start by supporting your community radio station with your hands and with your wallet. The topic today, and also next week, is treatment courts, a wise and powerful alternative to prison as punishment. We'll now go to the phones to speak to Rachel Shromack, one of the women going through a. i. m. court, alternatives to incarcerating mothers. Rachel, I'm so thankful that you chose to join me today for Spirit in Action.
3: Hi, it's nice to
1: be here. It's especially moving to me that people like you who have gone through the court system are willing to share their stories. It must feel kind of vulnerable. Is it easy for you to step forward and say, well, here's my story, here's what I went through in court, and just let people see you kind of naked in the truth of what you went through?
3: Well, I think before I entered AIM Court, it was hard to explain my story because it was still the excuses for me, you know, and I was still in that place. But now that I've gone through court and so much has changed, not only am I proud of it, but it makes my story come around full circle where now I can tell other girls and now it's a good thing in my life. You know, like maybe this is my purpose is to help other girls in my situation. It's a pivotal point in my life and, and I'm extremely proud of it. You know, who wouldn't be?
1: Could you give me a little bit of your background, what got you to the point where you actually were facing a lot of judgments against you and that you got to the AIM court, the AIM court, and we'll explain what that is shortly. How did you get there as a youth?
3: Well, as a child, I was a product of a very dysfunctional home that had a lot of mental health problems. My mom had borderline personality disorder. My father had tendencies towards antisocial. He was also very depressed and an alcoholic. Me and my dad were really close, like really extremely close, and that made it hard with my relationship with my mom. Eventually, my dad cheated on my mom, and then they went to counseling. She convinced the counselor that he was grooming me, and right about that time, I was going through puberty, and that scared him so much, he dropped me. And so it was, the timing was perfect. The most vulnerable and the worst thing that could have ever happened to me happened, you know, my most vulnerable stage already. After that, I was put into foster care, a treatment foster home. My foster parents were, like, in their 60s. They were Catholic. They were very cold. I was, like, the 72nd foster kid that they had, so I didn't get that love. I guess the only love that I really got was from my dad, and a lot of that was because I was just like him. It was, you know, a very egotistic kind of love, very arrogant, and I had to prove it to him, you know, and so love was pretty hard for me, and then... I was searching for it, and when I was 15, I ended up pregnant. He was a 21-year-old. He was 21, so my parents signed me over to get married when I was 16. And then I was on my own, and I had my son. He was really abusive, to the point where I actually had to get a very order. But, you know, he's not a bad guy. He just has anger problems, and we all got problems. Not to defend him. I'm not sick and, like, pathetic. Not that it would be pathetic, but I'm not. A victim in that way. Anyway, so from that point I was on my own and no one ever explained to me that I had to switch my marriage certificate with my social security card. Really no one ever taught me anything. How to drive, I didn't know how to even make doctor's appointments and go to them. I literally didn't know how to do anything and the thought of doing it made me feel so anxious that I couldn't do it. I couldn't really get assistance. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get any of those things because I didn't have an ID. And to get an ID, you need a social security card. You need an ID to get a social security card. You know, so it was a catch-22. So I was pretty much just completely dependent on men who were not healthy. I never had any good example of what a healthy relationship would look like. I had no business even saying hi to people, let alone, like, moving in with my child. So that was a really hard time, especially considering the hormones that were going through my body. You know, the stress of having a one-year-old, a two-year-old. Poor I was innocent during this whole thing. Not having any help from my parents. They wouldn't let me come to their house and they, and because I sold. Them. And I was definitely a scapegoat. I'm not going to place blame on everything. Like, I was not a good little girl by any means, and I would steal her pills, and I would steal her things. You know, she, she was a, a hoarder at this point, and so she wouldn't let me come in the house, but sometimes she'd let me sleep on the porch. I don't know. It was just a really hard time, and eventually I started dancing because it was the only thing I could do, and when you're, like, in desperate situations like that, you have to compromise your morals and values in order to survive. At that point, I really honestly did not have any other options. I really honestly tried to go through every possible thing I could have. But when you have to compromise your morals and your values, you you get shame. And and shame is a very painful, dangerous place to be. I couldn't go up there sober, obviously. And I wasn't 21 yet, so I started using opiates, and it got really bad. I became a very bad drug addict, eventually an IV user. Drinking and driving all the time, moving town to town to town, which that was like my whole life, just moving place to place to place, never having any real friendships, never having any real substance of a relationship with anybody. So then I started going to the methadone clinic after two years of dancing. And from that point, I mean, it got better. Methadone is a good band-aid. But long-term, it's really bad. Like, I got super depressed. I gained a lot of weight. All I could do was sleep. You just sleep all the time. And no motivation to do anything. Isaiah was late for school. At this point, Isaiah was in kindergarten. Isaiah was at least 15 minutes late to school every day because I could not get up. Couldn't get up. It would it'd be time to go get him. My alarm would go off and I was half asleep. I couldn't turn it back on. The house was just getting a mess because I had no motivation and the walls were closing around me. I was already like genetically inclined, I guess, to have depression. And then so mixed with all these drugs and, and the situation, it, psychologically, I was not in a good place. So then, you know, by that time, I started using Adderall because Adderall got me up. You know, I had motivation to do things. I felt good. My house was getting clean. I was losing weight. just felt like the answer to everything. And then on my 23rd birthday, I did mess for the first time. And I, my mind, I V'd it. And I lost a two days later, and that just killed me. He was the only thing I ever really had. Granted, I wasn't the best mom, and I made lots of mistakes, but I did. That doesn't make me a bad mom. Like, I will admit to everything. That does not mean I don't love my son. I just didn't know how to love him. So, it just killed me, you know, and all the shame. Like, imagine just walking into DHS, all the shame, just walking into the building, going up to that second floor, just let alone walking in there, considering everything else in your conscious. I mean, it was just a bad place. So, I kept using Because meth made me not feel it. But meth was also the reason why I was in the situation. What did I do? You know, I kept using. And then I showed up one day. I was living in Wisconsin Rapids. I showed up like two or three months later after it happened at GHS. Like, okay, I messed up. You know, I want to see my son. What do I do? They told me to go to treatment. And I went to treatment and I tried tried to stay sober, but I couldn't stay sober. I, I made it like, I think, a month and then I started using again. And then from that point... that's rough. You know, I I had no faith in myself. I believed every lie that I was ever told ever since I was a little girl that I was a bad person. Isaiah would be better off without me. Not even God loved me. My own parents didn't love me. There was obviously a reason, you know, and then I did that. And so I hung out with some really dangerous people and I seen some really bad things. And it scared me, you know, it really scared me. I, I seen the devil. So it made me believe in God. You know, like I really seen bad things. And then I got 13 charges within a four month period. I got 13 charges in 2013 by June, six months. And then I ended up in jail a couple times getting in and out. And then eventually I got into AIM Court and AIM Court saved my life, you know, from there. So that's kind of my story.
1: Tell us what AIM Court is, A-I-M Court. Just tell us what it is, because I, most people in the state and in the nation don't have this.
3: No, AIM Court is alternative to incarcerating mothers. It's also the only gender-specific treatment court in the entire country. They've really taken the time to get to know women. Usually, treatment has been aimed towards men. They know a lot about men, and women has kind of been like a second two to them. But now they're really taking the time to get to know women, get to know what makes them tick. You know, trauma has been a huge part of it. So they develop one of the most advanced trauma treatments in like pretty much the country too. They're not the best, but they're really high up there, which has been very important to the success of court.
1: I want to check out a few of the details coming up before you're 23, before you you were able to enter into court. One question is, in your mid-teens, you're already having a number of troubles. You're doing different drugs. Are you still going to school? How is that side of your life playing out?
3: I was chewing a lot in school, but I was also very book smart. So I really didn't go, but when I, I graduated two years early, I got my HFCD. I just went in there two or three days and got it. So that really wasn't a problem. But with a chewing, yes, that's how I originally got into a lot of trouble. That was kind of the start of, like, smoking pot, part of the trouble. There's being truant in school, sneaking out of the house, smoking pot, smoking cigarettes. That was the beginning.
1: And so what were you doing in your life at the time you're 21 and 22 and 23? Are you working? Are you living with someone
3: I'm dancing. I am dancing at that point. I lived with my mom for a little bit in Marshall. I got my own place a couple times and got evicted because I couldn't see my rent. Moving from friends' houses, you know, I don't know. Honestly, looking back, I don't know how I managed to even survive, you know, but you do. I did.
1: Well, actually, I have sisters who went through the same rigmarole in their lives in their mid-teens on up, so... I actually have seen it firsthand in my family. So you reach 23 and you get accepted to AIM Court, but you've already had a number of encounters with court system before. Could you describe what's different between going to the court regularly or going to the AIM Court?
3: Oh, definitely. Before I asked, the courts really just treated me with protocol, you know. They didn't really care. I'm sure they were overworked. They didn't care. I was their job, and you could tell. In-court was different because they cared. They were the first people that actually cared about me and believed in me. They're like my parents. They really are. They pick me up on my feet and shoved me along, but I would have never listened to them if it wasn't somebody like Marsha Shizik or even Judge Schumacher. You know, they're just such good people that really care about us and our children and, and what we're going through that day. It's a very individualized program. You know, I think the court's system before is like, here's a set of rules I and mean, you need to follow these set of rules. It's black and white. But in AIM court, there's a lot of gray area. You know, they consider everything that's going on, everything that's going on with you. You're acting out, well, let's figure out why you're acting out. If you have addiction problems, well, do you have mental health problems, too? Let's get you diagnosed. They really look through everything. You know, they take care of a lot of relationship stuff and codependency stuff, which has been a huge issue for all my peers. I don't know. I guess bottom line answer is just that they truly care. And that's something that I could tell the first day I walked into AIM Court when I observed I was in my orange and cup. And I walked away feeling something in my heart that literally felt something in my heart. And I know today that's hope. I don't know when a light turned on that day, but I knew right then that it was different. And, and I was excited.
1: And when you say they, are you just referring to the judge? Or who all is the they of AIM Court?
3: Marsha's the number one person. I mean, Marsha is Wonder Woman. She, she's running around doing everything. But then, of course, we have Judge Schumacher, who's like the father of the court. You know, you you got to go in front of him and explain yourself every week. He gives the discipline, and he's the one that you're kind of, you fear and you respect, and, you know, he's up there. But Marsha's very personal, and she she is in court, in my opinion. She does everything. She meets with us what, every week. She just coordinates everything i don't know how to even explain her job i'm sorry i wish i could do any more explain what she does she like when i have a problem like i need to get to this town to get to this court date she coordinates that she is in contact with everyone all over the city she makes things happen she coordinates stuff like all uh, the graduation she thinks of little things to make everything different she loves us all individually she's excited I don't know. I wish I could tell you more about what she does.
1: <laughs> is she a social worker?
3: She originally was a counselor. Originally, she was a counselor. And then she was working for LSS, and then they started her on halftime originally. They really lobbied. This is at a time when treatment courts, they weren't getting a lot of funding. In fact, they were losing funding. But AIM Court was doing so well, they lobbied and lobbied. They, DHS was willing to give that money to the treatment courts. And then the next year, they lobbied again, got her full time. And the next year, again, she became uh, full employment of her AIM Court. She has a very, very important role.
1: So when you went to court before, you had penalties or you have to go into treatment. So what did AIM Court require you to do?
3: I had all kinds of requirements. I just stay sober. I have to do at least three UAs a week. I have to go to at least two meetings a week. I have to at least have a job or go to school. You're just constantly moving forward with your life. If you're late to a meeting or a counseling appointment, you get sanctioned. You have to do like four hours of community service. If, say, you miss like two UAs in a week, well, then you can go to jail for a day.
1: Wait, you said UAs? What's a UA?
3: you analysis a drug test
1: uas okay i didn't i've never had a ua
3: (laughs) (laughs) i've had tons of them (laughs) like every day it feels like it's a normal part of my day
1: i'm glad your system is still working that you can produce that much
3: urine
1: (laughs) so there are penalties if you don't do things and are there rewards
3: if you do things well Oh, yeah. They they found research shows that when you reward someone for doing something well, it is far more effective than punishing someone when they do something bad. So, yeah, we get rewarded constantly. We get these little incentive cards every week, and we put them in a fishbowl every Tuesday morning, and then they get a drawing, and we get cool stuff like chamber bucks, which is like same thing as cash. So we'll get cash, or we'll get tickets for the Children's Museum, or all kinds of local stores and whatnot they pitch into i don't know prizes i (laughs) guess i don't know yeah they just praise you which feels good tell you how great you're doing or you know wow i've really seen you change and it's motivating they keep you motivated
1: i assume one of the important things about the aim court the alternatives to incarcerating mothers is that you get to maintain some kind of relationship with your child your children
3: yes yes that is obviously the main focus of aim court most of us have chips cases that like children and protective services have gotten involved. Now you have to jump through all these hoops. And you have a certain amount of time to do this or your child will be taken away from you. And so you go through LSS and you go visit your child either at their office and there's different phases with that too, you know. And then the first phase is where a social worker is with you all the time in an office. When you're doing good enough, you know, then you move to second stages where you can go out into the community with the social worker. The third step is where you're monitored. They will give you your child wherever and they'll just kind of pop in and out. The fourth step is overnight, alone pretty much. They'll pop in like once. That's where I'm at right now. My son, I get him all weekend and then on Wednesdays. And I see my social worker like once a week. And then after that, they close out the case
1: So, it was over a year ago that you got introduced to the AIM Court. How long have you been sober straight on the good path? I assume you still slip up once in a while.
3: Oh, I do. Of course, I'm an addict, you know. But I'm very honest with them. And if you're honest with this program, you will see vast changes. I've relapsed, I think, like four times. I usually do four months. And then I relapse. You know, I self-sabotage. I'm destructible, but we know that now, and now we can plan ahead, and every time I fall, I pick myself up with more knowledge, and now I'm a smarter addict for it, you know, and I have a better plan ahead of me. I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall, and I've always have fallen, fallen, and I always will fall, but that just makes me a smarter person, I think.
1: Clearly, you really appreciate what AimCourt has done for you. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Are there a lot of people you see out there who are not getting the services of something like Court and who need it?
3: Oh, yeah, I mean, all my peers that I used to know from the streets. it's like you gotta think a bit of it as a sociology point of view. You know, you're kind of growing up in this world where if you're not getting the attention you need. You have narcissistic your parents. You're, I don't know, your values and your things are different. Just rap music today. I could get into this, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about, where this is just normal. These behaviors are normal to smoke weed and be loud and disrespectful to elders. And, and you make fun of people who go to church and do the right thing. It's That's, that's normal. So when you go into the system and stuff, that... It's just a part of life. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, we're just raising generation after generation to get worse and worse. Not everyone is lucky to get strict parents. Most of my peers have not. So yes, I know hundreds and hundreds of people that could really benefit
1: from this program. Well, it sounds like it's made a world of difference to you, and I think therefore to your son Isaiah. Oh yeah, it makes a difference to so many people around you. Can you actually, as a participant of AIM Court, can you point to the court or point people to the court so that they connect up?
3: Oh yes, yes, definitely. But I mean, there's only so many spots open. The problem is, is we don't have the funding to get more people involved we now we have to like we're keeping three spots or taking away three spots because we don't know what's going to happen with this eau claire county budget thing the problem is we need funding there's only like 20 spots at a time
1: the amazing thing is it's so much cheaper to do it this way than to put you in jail and yet society so often chooses throw you in jail which hurts the future generations whereas right now isaiah has a bright future ahead of him because he's got a mother and a father.
3: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, his teachers benefit. The whole community benefits. I mean, cash prices go down. You know, the community safer. Trust me. Like, I've been on the streets. The community is safer when you fix this problem. Like, if you put them in jail, they're just going to go right back out again as start a criminal. And the thing is, is that we're all people. We all have love inside of us. We just need someone to pick us up and show us how to express it. We're all just products of our own environment. And you can't really blame someone for who grew up in a different one than years. You can't judge them for that. All you can do is hope for the best. And what this program gives is hope.
1: I'm also wondering about your personal future, Rachel. I think before you said maybe you made some money by dancing. Mm-hmm. You sound like an extremely intelligent, a solid thinking person. I wonder if you're doing more education or finding a, a job or a profession that's going to suit use more of your talents.
3: I do both. I'm in the liberal arts program at CBTC, and I'm also working at JBC marketing, Marketing. I'm a busy girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's a good thing. I feel great. I'm a productive member of society, and and I'm just excited for what doors are going to open in the future. I really, I really love what IMPORT does, and I really hope to help someday.
1: I meant to ask you a little bit. You you said you had a spiritual uh, realization that God's there, that God cares, maybe. Could you talk a little bit about what you had growing up? Uh, you mentioned your foster parents were Catholic at one point. What nurtured you, or what did you learn along the way?
3: Well, my parents were extremely, extremely Christian. When I said that my dad oh, would have this affair and I was seeing puberty, at the same time we were getting to keep out of church. So this is a very vulnerable time. But we went to church at least three days a week. My mom was a youth leader. I was a worship leader when I was, like, nine years old. Um, we were non-denominational. It was a type of people speaking tongues and, and stuff like that. It was a very small church, but it was my home. And the cool thing is, is when I first got out of jail in October after joining AIM Corp, I opened this book. I was staying at Bolton's Refuge House, and this book, and it was Pr- Power of a Praying Parent. And I opened up the book, and inside that book was a list of, of from my pastor's wife, and it was all of our names and our prayer requests from this church that was in independence, like, over 10 years ago. Like, with my names, my brother, sister, my friends, and everything. And it, on there, it asked for the Holy Spirit to be working through children, and she put on there that it was. And it was just so cool to find that book. Like, I know it was there because it was all the same names of all the people in our church, which was less than 20 people. It was pretty cool. But, yeah, I grew up very, very Christian and right when I hit puberty. God can't get taken away from me, but it kind of felt like it.
1: Did you say you got kicked out of the church?
3: Yeah, because my mom was dead set on that we were going to go to hell unless we didn't repent. And the church didn't believe that, because obviously that's not what the Bible says. But my mom, you know, there's all kinds of different scriptures you can take different ways. And my mom, she was so scared. I remember her going up shaking, but she really believed us and she was trying to fight for it. And... They got upset, and we kind of got kicked out. I don't know if we really got kicked out or what really happened. I don't know, but it felt like it.
1: And so what's your connection with God or religion or spirit now?
3: Much better. I feel very close with my God right now. I feel the Holy Spirit working inside of me. I don't know. I I don't have the words for it right now. I feel the Holy Spirit in me, and I see it in other people, and I feel like I'm on the right path. In court, it has always had that feeling for me. I don't know how to explain it to you. It's like the Holy Spirit was there with me, and this was exactly where I was supposed to be, which tells me that everything I went through was exactly how it was supposed to be, too. And so I can sit here and tell you my story today.
1: Oh, I'm so thankful for your story, for the healing you are gone through, the promising future I had for you. And I really appreciate that you are willing to share this with people listening to Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Rachel.
3: Yeah, thank you.
1: That ends Part 1 of 2 of our look into the people and process of Eau Claire, Wisconsin's treatment courts. You may have, or at least should have, similar alternative judicial solutions in your own area. That was AIM Court, soon to be graduate. Rachel Schramach, and before that, we heard from Treatment Court Supervisor Melissa Ives. And next week, we'll be talking to two men who've seen Eau Claire's drug and mental health courts from the inside. Join us next week for Part 2 of our Treatment Court Special for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio.